So the first question, uh, if you are taking notes, I'm going to bombard you with information. It'll be lots of fun. So the first question, when does God permit us to obey, permit us to disobey rather, human government? Uh, that is going to require that we investigate Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, uh, which I think is the real hotbed of controversy of late. Uh, so let me just to you, I'm sure that many of you have your conclusions already. Uh, some of you may be uncertain of what the text says. Uh, some of you uh, are probably already convinced that my interpretation will be wrong. Uh, others will agree with me, and uh, that's just something I've grown used to over the last 15 years in ministry. So uh, we'll just go with it. Romans 13, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an event wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscious sake. Now, I'm going to actually stop at verse 5. Paul goes on to talk about paying taxes. Who wants to talk about that this morning? Okay, we'll just move on then. It's actually verses 1 through 5 that interest us this morning. So human government, human government, a couple questions. Is it according to God? That's one. Two, what is his divine purpose for it? Three, what obligation does the church have to it? And four, what limitations does the government have regarding the church, if any? Okay. So what is it? What is human government? Paul said an appointment of God. It's, it's actually the, the ordination of God. Government is a delegation of God's authority. That's verses um, 1 and 2. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but this does not mean that all government authorities or officials behave in a way that is morally consistent with God. Okay? Yeah. It, this just means, this text just means that God appointed government and gave it authority. What they do with that authority is another issue, and God will judge appropriately and government abuses it. You understand? Okay. And then, what is God's purpose for government? The text says to be a terror that is to terrorize, not good behavior, but evil behavior. Verse 3, it says, Paul says that its purpose is to act as God's minister for good, for, and to act as God's avenger to execute wrath on those who practice evil. That's verse 4. Now, this does not mean that government always acts as God's minister for good and a punisher of evil. It just means that these are the reasons for which God ordained government. Do you guys follow me so far? Okay. So that's what government is. That's what the purpose for it is. God's purpose. Church's obligation to government. What is our obligation as believers? Well, Paul is clear. We should obey and be subject to the governing authorities. 
verse 1. A government consists of state and federal, county and city. Okay, you can visit Titus 1.3 and uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 for the, all the various levels of government, all of which are ordained by God, all of which should be obeyed by us. So there you have what government is, what God's purpose for it is, and the believer's obligation to it. All of that's great. All of that would be fine, perhaps, but God's people have often disobeyed government and been rewarded by God for it. So there are some conditions here, aren't there? Yeah. So that brings up the last question. What limitations has God placed on government regarding the church? So let's begin with this. God has commanded his church, he has commanded his church to live according to the mandates of his word, all of which are good, holy, and just. Can we all agree on that? Every commandment of God is good, it's holy, and just. Paul says that in Romans chapter seven. No command of God is evil, good. But God has only delegated authority to government to terrorize what? Evil. To terrorize evil. What the church does, according to God's word, is not evil. It is always good. So any government that terrorizes the church for obeying the scriptures has abused and violated its, and its purpose. It's violated it. It's abused it. Okay? In fact, when any government terrorizes the church, for obeying the scriptures, the government itself has committed evil against not just us, but against God, okay? Yeah, because at that moment, the government has failed to act as God's minister for what is good, and instead he is punishing the good. God's people from the past understood that if they obeyed the government, in service, they would find themselves disobeying the scriptures, which would then put them at odds with the God of the scriptures, who is the ultimate authority. And so what they did is they obeyed God, and they disobeyed the government, which God approved of, which God approved of, okay? And for this, God's people would often suffer the evil wrath of government, as you guys know, but they would have God's blessing and all God's reward in eternity. It's the facts of history, yeah. So there are limitations, there's boundaries established by God when it comes to the government's authority over the church, but there are also, you guys understand, there's limitations to the church's obedience to human government. There are limitations for us, okay? What are those boundaries? We cannot obey government when it tries to restrict our biblical mandates because the authority of God far exceeds government authority, which we must obey. As Paul says in verse one, all authority comes from God, and his authority has limited government to the terrorizing of evil and the praising of the good. So human government does not, it does not have the authority to regulate or restrict the church regarding its biblical mandates. In those cases, the church, we would say, is outside of the government's jurisdiction. It's outside. We have what we might call a diplomatic immunity, as it were, whether the government recognizes it or not. Yeah. And when government fails to recognize our immunity, 
That's when we brace ourselves and we prepare ourselves for problems. That's just what we do, okay? Which God's people have done for centuries. But we're not permitted to disobey Christ's command because the government tells us to. So again, when government infringes upon the church's biblical mandates, it has failed to operate according to God's purpose, according to God's ordination. At that point, the government is in opposition to God. It's the government that is resisting his authority for which he will punish them. Uh, We've seen that multiple times in history. God did it to Egypt, you remember that story? He did it to Assyria, read Isaiah. Uh, He did it to Babylon, read the prophets. Okay. And he will do it again and again. Okay. Now, of course, how all of this applies in our current situation is what's being hotly debated currently. Okay. And I believe it should be. I believe it should be debated depending on who you are and where you live. Okay. Who you are, where you live. Let's move on to our second text and answer our second question. The question is, what is the assembly of the believers from Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. What is the assembly of the believers? Um, I would say in the last 70 years uh, of church history, this has become very confusing. Uh, has gone more and more away from the scriptures uh, and theology, and then they've just kind of developed their own philosophy and ideas, that uh, confusion about what the church is and what the assembly is, has just, I don't know, it's gone all over the place. Here's the passage. The author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope with, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We recently covered this and, uh, in the book of Hebrews. The concept that we want to address, of course, is the assembly, and then there's all of these other concepts that are kind of incorporated into that, into the text, and they're actually the entire New Testament, okay? The assembly of believers is a thing. It's a thing. It's divinely designed, appointed by God that fulfills certain divine purposes. It's clear everywhere in the New Testament. So what's the assembly of the believers? To begin with, the definition of what it is frequently fallen into opinion rather than just a strict uh, observance of the scriptures. Okay. First, the assembly of believers is not where two or three gather in his name. I hear this all the time from Christians. Okay. It is not the assembly. It's not the church, okay? Uh, I used to believe this, and I thought it was true until I uh, began to study the scriptures, especially Matthew chapter 18, and I learned that that phrase, when we interpreted that, in no regard to the context, okay? In that statement, in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus is actually referring to an Old Testament concept regarding legal matters. It's legal matters, For a legal matter to be established regarding someone's guilt, there had to be how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. That is, two or three witnesses before the community could actually discipline that person for what they did. 
That is the context of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. So Jesus begins in verse 15 by addressing the sin of a believer, and that sin has been witnessed by one other believer, okay? But one witness is not sufficient to discipline another believer for unrepentant sin. So others prescribes, he says, bring more witnesses into the situation so that guilt can be established. And when there were enough witnesses and the sinning believer had not repented, the three witnesses would then bring the matter before the church, before the church, who would then discipline the unrepentant believer by excluding them from the assembly. But without those witnesses, without them, guilt could not be established. And without the establishment of guilt, there are not sufficient grounds to discipline someone. Notice how the two to three witnesses were to bring the matter to the church. The church. If the three witnesses were the church, there would be no mandate for them to bring it to the church. Do you get it? That's the point Jesus is making. That's the context of the statement for where two or three are gathered together in my name that is consistent with authority, I am there in their midst. You guys understand it. Jesus is always in our midst even when we're alone. Okay, he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But just because there's a plurality of us does not make the church. It does not make the assembly. Okay? Two or three witnesses constitutes a legal body in the scriptures. Okay, a legal body. The assembly is distinct from that. Here in Hebrews 10.25, the words assembling are, is actually one word in the Greek. It's one word. It's a noun, and it's preceded by the definite article, the. This is the assembly, which means that uh, what the author here is talking about is not an assembly. It's not a gathering of believers. He's saying this is the assembly. He's talking about a very specific one, and it's one that his, his audience is very, very familiar with, okay? Now, the other thing that he's not talking about is having coffee with another believer and discussing spiritual truths and encouraging one another in the faith, a good thing in itself. You guys, it's not the gathering. It's not the assembly. He's not talking about a Bible study or a home group. Both good things, but not the assembly. Neither is he talking about service being live-streamed on YouTube to someone's living room. A good thing in itself, it is not the assembly. It is not, okay? These would all be considered a gathering, an assembly, but biblically, none of them constitute what the New Testament would define as the assembly, okay? Bible studies in, with the intent of planting a church we might say that they're in the infant or developmental stages of becoming the assembly, but they are not yet that thing. The word assembly is literally the complete number, the complete number. Here in the context, it refers to the local body of believers gathering together for corporate worship. Now, I know that in Western culture, we think that worship is when we sing the songs. That is not how that historically. Worship is everything we do together in this particular context. Everything, okay? Everything. It's the body of believers gathering together. Now, in the context of Hebrews 10, the historical context is significant. 
Some of the believers in a particular city were avoiding the assembly because their association with the assembly was getting them persecuted. That is, they didn't go to the gathering, the assembly, because their person was getting damaged and their, their personal property was being confiscated. And what does the author say to that? I know it's really hard for us Westerners to hear. Not a good enough reason to avoid the assembly. Imagine that. What does that say about the assembly? Eh, it's no big deal. No, he's, he, the author is elevating the significance and the importance of the assembly of the body of Christ. It's hard for us to swallow, isn't it? Yeah. In the New Testament, as established by the apostles, the assembly uh, met on Sundays. That's when they met. And the assembly consisted of church leadership. That is biblical authority. It, it began initially by the apostles, and then that was handed down to local government with pastors and elders. There was the teaching of the apostles. There was corporate fellowship, unity and community, where there was mutual encouragement. There was exhortation. And according to Paul, there was the exercise of all the gifts of the Spirit, all of them. There was the breaking of bread, which we know the Lord's Supper was included in that. There was corporate prayer. There was corporate worship and song and thanksgiving. And when there was new converts, there was baptism. So historically, theologians have said that what's present in the gathering is the ordinances. That is the Lord's table and then baptism. Okay. Without all of these factors together, we really don't have what is the assembly of the believers. This is what it is in the New Testament, okay? It's what we observe. Now, we might say that ministry was accomplished all over the place. It was accomplished in the temple. It was accomplished in homes, uh, beach, and on the banks of a river, okay? But the assembly was the complete number of local believers gathering on the first day of the week for the purpose established by the apostles. And Paul says the apostles and the prophets are the groundwork, they're the foundation of all of this. So we're following in their footsteps. And then these things are laid out in Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4.11 through 16, which we've all been there many times at Calvary Chapel. All of our philosophy of ministry comes out of those. Sure. So... The apostles didn't have the authority to just make this up as they went. Amen? They were led by the Holy Spirit. It's Christ's church. So the definition, the practice of the assembly of God's people is not for anyone to decide but Christ. Okay? Now, with that said, I believe that there are various reasons they not assemble. I believe that. And that takes us to Matthew 12, okay? Matthew 12. When does God permit us to suspend obedience to various commands of scripture? Ever considered that? Obey the government because God's authority exceeds government. But does God give us permission to suspend obedience to his commands? Matthew 12, one through eight. I won't be addressing everything in the chapter. Uh, there's plenty of things there for you to study. 
It says at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So what they were doing is harvest was ready. They were hungry, picking the heads off the tops of the grain. And what they would do is they would do this in their hand. That would break off the shell, off the wheat berry, and they would they'd blow it away, and then they would eat. And that's what they were doing on the Sabbath day. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this is what's happening. According to uh, rabbinical tradition, it was unlawful for someone to harvest any amount of grain on the Sabbath, even if it was just a handful. Okay? And it was unlawful for anyone to sift grain on the Sabbath, even if it was just a handful. So according to this tradition, Jesus' disciples were breaking God's Sabbath law. But as Jesus pointed out, the Pharisees were majoring on a minor and missing the point of God's law. Now, first, under normal circumstances, preparations were supposed to be made so that you didn't have to harvest and sift on the Sabbath day. But if someone had nothing to eat, as the disciples did not, the law didn't forbid harvesting and sifting enough by someone's hunger. The rabbinical interpretation of the law went too far. That's what Jesus is saying. Whereas Jesus was teaching that a person's hunger superseded the Sabbath law. It superseded it. And as Jesus addresses a very minor instance, when there were much bigger ones in the scriptures that the Pharisees conveniently overlooked. Okay? And the one that interests us this morning is the story of David. Of David. In 1 Samuel 21, you know the story. David is running for his life from King Saul. And he came to Nob. And at that time, the tabernacle, the house of God, was in Nob. And the story begins actually by David lying to the priest doing there because he didn't want the priest to be implicated in his crime. That's a, a, something for another day, I think. Uh, I guess I should just say that David knew that if he told the priest what he was actually doing, it would endanger the priest for helping David. That's aiding and abetting a criminal, okay? An enemy of the state. So that he was on a secret mission for the king and that in his haste to execute the king's command, he left behind food and weaponry. And so he requested the priest for both. In response to David's request for food, the priest said that there was no common bread on hand. There was only the show bread, that is the holy bread, and he gave it to David to eat. You guys, this is the bread that was on the table inside the holy pinnacle. 
it was unlawful for anyone to eat but the priests, okay? Leviticus 24.9 says, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. No one else was allowed to touch what was considered most holy in the house of God. They couldn't even touch it. Only the, what was in the temple. The Levites could be in the tabernacle. They could serve the needs of the priests. They could sweep around the table. But if they touched it, they would die. That's a big deal, don't you think? Careful sweeping. Yeah. And an outsider <clears throat> was not even permitted to go into the house of God. Well, less touch an article or okay. to do so was a capital offense, Numbers 18. But Jesus says that David, who is neither a priest or a Levite, went into the house of God and ate the showbread. What in the world is going on? He went in and he ate. Again, Jesus is teaching that what is normally unlawful and forbidden, okay, it's not forbidden when someone has need for food. Jesus was teaching that a person's need for food superseded the Sabbath law, and with David, his need for food superseded the temple law. Do you see that as a big deal? It's huge. Jesus was teaching that obedience to a particular command can be temporarily suspended because people are... And there's a lot of other examples in the scriptures where the peril of life temporarily supersedes a command or even one's conscience, okay? We've talked about this before from the book of Hebrews, the midwives in Exodus 1. They feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh, so they lied to Pharaoh in order to protect the Hebrew babies that Pharaoh wanted to kill. And the text says that God rewarded the midwives for what they did, Exodus 1.21. Also, Rahab's faith in receiving and hiding the by means of lying to the king was celebrated by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 11.31. And even though she was under the ban as an accursed person, a Canaanite, she was incorporated into Israel, contrary to the law. And... Her name is found in Jesus' genealogy. I think that's kind of interesting. So in both of these cases, protecting human life was of greater value to a murderer. I think we saw that in the Holocaust, too. You know the stories. So man's need and the peril of life temporarily supersede the law. We saw that with the midwives, with Rahab, with David on more than one occasion. <clears throat> and in Matthew 12, with the disciples. So I think now the question is this, why have I brought you to all these passages? And what do they have to do with opening our church? Now, as you know, I've already put it out there, we've been planning to reopen the church. Uh, we've been planning it since before. Uh, we thought the governor would permit it, okay? Uh, and we're technically, according to the government, not supposed to be in here today, okay? Uh, I, I don't think that's a secret to anyone. Why would we do all of that? Why would we open our doors in opposition's uh, mandate? Well, because we believe that the governor's mandate at this point is in conflict with God's mandate to assemble, okay? 
And I'll explain that in a moment. Also, currently, there is this idea among believers that the mandate of the assembly is somehow uh, being streaming the service on YouTube. This is all over the internet right now. And some you can't do church without objects. It's just absolutely impossible. Okay, you can't be a mutual blessing. You can't contribute. It's just none of those things are possible. Okay. The only thing that's been live streamed on YouTube is some worship songs and Bible teaching. All good things. But what scripture constitutes as the assembly most certainly has not streamed. So Pastor Ben, why then did we close down in the first place? Isn't that in conflict with God's mandate? Yes, it is. It was. Yeah. But if you remember, we stopped our corporate meetings before the governor locked the state down. Do you guys remember? Before he locked it down. But because of the governor. We stopped meeting corporately because we believed that there was a potential threat to our people. We believed that. We stopped meeting because we love people and we didn't want to carelessly endanger the lives of others. Most of you received the email, didn't you? Okay. We believed that temporarily suspending our obedience to the mandate to assemble was justified the potential threat to our community. Do you understand? You guys understand. But now we have every reason to believe that the imminent threat to our lives does not exist and may never have existed in our community. Now, I'm not saying that because I don't believe that the virus exists or that there was no danger because we had three people in our ranks get COVID-19. Okay, all of them have recovered, praise God. I've said that because there are, there are more dangerous things in our community than COVID-19. And we have not shut down because of those reasons. And since March 1st, more people have died from things other than COVID-19, okay? In fact, from March 1st, 2020 to May 15th, 2020, 181 people died in Lewis County from things that aren't even related to COVID-19, okay? Whereas only three people in our county have died in that time frame from the virus. Only 35 have tested positive out of 80 people. I, I don't think it's any longer justifiable to think, keep the church closed. Okay? COVID-19 is not the number one killer in our community. God's people have greater concerns than the virus. Okay? Yeah. So it's my conviction. It's my conviction that the church should wisely and reasonably reassemble. All right? Now, with all of that said, I believe that there are uh, temporary exceptions to what we're doing here this morning. Uh, I believe that uh, reassembling pertains to our community. I do not believe that it, it pertains to every community out there. I think there's other communities that need to be more careful. Okay, if we had extremely high numbers of infections in a dense population, I think we should be even more careful. Um, like Pastor Marcos, you realize the numbers in Lima continue to rise, okay? Uh, they're second only to Brazil right now. And uh, Pastor Marcos knows people, uh, more people, I think, than we do. And so they're uh, gonna keep their doors closed for now while they live stream. I think that's temporarily fine. I think it's wise. Okay, I think it's loving. I also believe that some of our population here in our church is at greater risk and should be more cautious but conviction to be here in fellowship, guess what? I am not gonna forbid you from coming. 
Okay, you're adults. You can make those decisions. How many of you older people would appreciate if I just strong-armed you at the door anyway? That would go over super well. And, uh, and then I would be at risk of um, rebuking an older person, which Paul condemns, and I just won't do it. So um, you're, you're the gatekeeper of your own, your own destiny when it comes to that. Also, uh, if you're in the service of caring for someone that is at greater risk, you should abstain for their sake, I would say that you're, you're temporarily exempt. Okay, I believe that. But for the rest of us, I don't see how we can justify avoiding the assembly any longer. Okay? Now, if the government coerces us to shut down, which they're very capable of, uh, we'll just have to get creative and find a modern version of the catacombs, which uh, the early church uh, met in when they were persecuted. Not sure how we would do that now, but uh, you guys are all criminally minded, so we'll figure something out. <laughs> Now, I do need to say this, that when we obey God's word in opposition to a government mandate, it does not give us the right to disobey the government in other areas. Please understand that, okay? The only government mandates we can ignore are those that obstruct our obedience to God, okay? Uh, right now, they're forbidding us to assemble when the scriptures say to assemble. They're telling us not to lay hands on the sick, when James 5 tells me to lay hands on the sick, which I haven't stopped doing, okay? But other than that, they're not inf uh, infringing on anything else. So I would say, when you're driving to church, don't go 90 miles an hour. Uh, if the officer asks me, they go to the Baptist church, <laughs> clearly, okay? Uh, make sure you pay your taxes. Finish Romans chapter 13, verses six and seven. Um, yeah, I'll visit you in jail, but I will not bail you out. Okay, my family needs the money too much. So maybe you could use your stimulus money for that. Yeah. Uh, also, by our plans of getting together, we're not trying to instigate tension uh, with the government. I have no interest in doing that. Okay, I love meeting uh, with our friends of that. Uh, we've been trying to accommodate their mandates uh, within reason, uh, but now we believe that those reasons are no longer good reasons. So we're going to re, uh, resume the assembly. And because I believe myself to be uh, a reasonable person, we've decided to wait until June 7th to officially open, okay? Most of you have ignored that at this point. Uh, that's, that's on you. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm not gonna turn anyone away. Uh, the 7th is the official day. And also, because we want to cover the governor's mandate as much as possible, as you can see in here, we've taken out 50% of the seats. Uh, we're trying to make it much like they have with opening restaurants. They're letting sit-down restaurants be at 50% capacity, um, except most Calvary Chapel families can't go because it's only five people to a table <laughs> being discriminated against. Uh, we have six feet uh, between the rows. Um, and more to accommodate the mandate, we've decided to uh, temporarily do two services, okay, unless we have a sudden uh, increase in the population of our church since the shutdown. Uh, first service will be at nine. The other will be at 11. Uh, and because we have, uh, we just have a bunch of large families here at Calvary Chapel, with, which we love, uh, you may get a phone call uh, asking you to go to the other lest we have all the big families come to one service and then you've made everybody else feel uncomfortable for some reason. 
So the Corwins are the only real problem, though, because you can't see past them. So we should assign, like, a back corner to the Corwins. Jacoby, you were blocking the worship team this morning. Way to go. Yeah. Uh, and following the seventh, um, uh, we're going to have uh, open services here on Thursday nights. For temporarily, we will not be having meals together. That probably won't last too long. But uh, also we have uh, antibacterial soap at all of the doors. And the church building uh, is on a scheduled uh, is on a cleaning schedule, so the place is clean. Um, what else? We're going to encourage, but not enforce, uh, social distancing. How would I, like an atomic elbow, like knock that off? So we're going to encourage it, can't enforce it. Uh, also, um, with that in mind, um, you guys are Christians. You know how to be considerate of people. So if people are wearing PPE, if they're wearing face masks, uh, that's, don't, don't shame them for doing that, all right? If that's what they want to do. Um, also, when we have, can be real soon, I think we'll probably do it on the 7th, is we're going to have two cups that you'll take. It'll, they'll be together, stacked on top of each other. The bread will be in the bottom cup. The juice will be on the top, just so that uh, fingers aren't rummaging through the bread dish. That sound fair enough to you guys? Okay. Um, what else? I think it's announcements. Um, that's right. Sunday school and nursery. Um, you can take your children to the nursery if you want. Uh, we might take a few toys out of there. Uh, it might be best if you brought your own toys, and then uh, you can be in charge of running them through the dishwasher or however you would do that. So there will, some of the Sunday schools will continue to live stream. Uh, if that's something you want for your children, we encourage that. And anything else, Margaret? And no children's. Children's ministries at all. You'll have to uh, be responsible for your own children. So it's just the way it goes. Uh, I guess just to end, uh, to encourage you guys with two principles, uh, love toward our neighbor, Faith toward God. Love does no intentional or careless harm to its neighbor. Uh, so we, uh, with that in mind, but faith toward God does not allow us to walk in fear. Not fear of death, uh, not fear of government, not fear of public opinion, uh, not fear of the unknown. Amen? And then I guess that's always a trilogy, isn't it? There's always hope. So we're going to continue to hope. All right. Well, next week we will uh, resume our study in Hebrews. Uh, chapter 13. We probably won't finish the chapter, um, but that's no surprise to you guys. So read ahead, study, and uh, I'm sure there will probably be more people here next Sunday. So go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. If you have questions for me or objections, um, I'm prepared for both, uh, but mostly I just want to enjoy my time with you guys and, and all that. So uh, we're going to end with some songs this morning. And I didn't step on a violin, which is a good thing. Some, somebody carelessly left it on the floor right there. So let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you again for the church. Word, your wisdom, your love to, um, to direct our path. We want to enjoy one another. We want to do it safely and respectfully as we can of our government. Um, but Lord, we're gonna obey your word. 
and uh, unless we have very strong reason to early. And uh, Lord, I believe that's past. I believe it's time to be together so that we can be a mutual blessing to one another and honor you in this context. And just ask for your grace upon your people, my church family, and uh, thank you, Lord, for having us together. We look forward to more of it later. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.